Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hey everybody, it's AG and welcome to Refried Beans, where we play an episode of the Daily Beans podcast from the same week, either one, two, or three years ago, so we can see how far we've come. So please enjoy this episode from days gone by and note the date in the intro. Refried beans, I like refried beans. That's why I want to try fried beans, because maybe they're just as good and we're, we're wasting time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. Today, Merrick Garland impaneled a grand jury and has been criminally investigating Sidney Powell for at least three months. Mark Meadows has not been referred for criminal contempt of Congress because he's cooperating with the 1-6 committee. California insurrectionists are hit with a superseding indictment for conspiracy against the United States. And a U.S. Labor Board official has ordered Amazon to redo the union vote in Alabama. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hey, Dana, it's one of those every news story is a good news story days. I love it. We could use more of those. And yes, there are some wonderful stories. Um, and you're having a good day, are you not? <laughs> I'm having a very good day, as is justice. And OK, 
Today, we'll be talking with Pete Strzok. I promise. (laughs) We'd like to tease you all about Pete Strzok. No more breaking news stories that I know about today. We're going to talk about the Department of Justice and why investigations must remain a secret. And thanks to Hugo Lowell for, for giving us a late night first interview with his exclusive story about Trump calling the Willard multiple times the night before the insurrection to plan stopping the electoral vote count. So that was a very, very great scoop by Hugo Lowell. And I appreciate him coming on the show yesterday. Very last minute, we had to bump Pete Strzok. And you know, you know how important you have to be to bump Peter Strzok? I mean, pretty important. Yeah, I don't like to bump anyone, but it had to happen. And today we got what we've been waiting for for over 10 months now. Confirmation the Department of Justice is investigating the coup. Let's get into that and hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. (laughs) I I have Party in the USA playing in the background in my head right now. Federal prosecutors have demanded the financial records of multiple fundraising organizations launched by attorney Sidney Powell after the 2020 election as part of a criminal investigation. And that's according to a subpoena reviewed by The Washington Post. It was never before reported. The grand jury subpoena issued in September by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia sought communications and other records relating to fundraising and accounting by groups, including Defending the Republic, a Texas-based organization claiming 501c4 nonprofit status, and a PAC by the same name. And that's according to documents and a person familiar with the investigation who spoke on the condition of anonymity to share details of the probe. As part of the investigation, which had not been previously reported, prosecutors are seeking records going back to November of 2020. The subpoena reviewed by The Post was signed by Assistant U.S. Attorney Molly Gaston, who is also handling politically charged matters related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, including contempt of Congress charges brought against former Trump advisor Stephen Bannon for refusing to testify in front of the House committee investigating the riot. The fact that the subpoena was signed by Molly Gaston says to me this subpoena could be part of a broader investigation into the attempts to overturn the 2020 election. I remember Garland telling Congress he was following the money. And today we got confirmation that is and has been happening. In an email, an attorney for Defending the Republic said, We have always known the more effective we are, the more the false attacks will intensify. Defending the Republic has and will continue to fight for hashtag we the people who make this country work. Defending the Republic and the PAC will not be diverted from their missions by lies, innuendo, and other distractions, added the attorney. Howard Kleinhandler, who, by the way, was sanctioned <laughs> when we, you know, with all the Kraken attorneys. <laughs> yes. Quote, we believe in the law. <clears throat> Do you? Do you, though? The rule of law. Which one? And we, in- <laughs> we intend to follow it and work to reinstate and preserve it. And that's why I've been sanctioned and forced to take <laughs> training about how to present cases uh, et cetera, et cetera. The federal investigation highlights the intensifying legal quandaries facing Trump allied attorneys and other figures, other figures who promoted false claims the election was rigged. Earlier this year, defending the Republic was fined by Florida authorities and named in a federal defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems, the Denver based company portrayed by Powell as part of a plot to steal the 2020 election. Thank you to everyone who stood by me as I defended the Department of Justice from social media attacks, insisting Garland was doing nothing. He impaneled a grand jury in D.C., and he's been investigating for at least three months, and we didn't hear a peep about it until today. Because why? This DOJ does not leak like the last one. 
Mm. And they got those leaks fixed. Look at that. Mm. And also from the Department of Justice website, a California man has been arrested for conspiracy and other crimes related to the breach of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which, as we know, disrupted a joint session of the U.S. Congress that was in process of ascertaining and counting the electoral votes related to the presidential election. Edward Bedalian, 27, of Los Angeles, California, is charged in an indictment with conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding and aiding and abetting, tampering with documents or proceedings, and other offenses. The indictment was unsealed today in the District of Columbia. Now, Bedalian was arrested on November 17th, 2021, in Los Angeles, and made his initial court appearance in the Central District of California. He was arraigned on November 23rd in the District of Columbia. Medallion was charged in a superseding indictment returned in a case initially filed of March 2021 against Daniel Rodriguez. He's a 39-year-old of Fontana, California. Now, Rodriguez was indicted at the same time on charges including the assault of a Metropolitan Police Department officer, Michael Fanone. The superseding indictment adds a conspiracy charge against him. Rodriguez has been detained since his arrest on March 31st, 2021. He was arraigned on November 16th, 2021, in the District of Columbia. Now, according to the indictment, in the fall of 2020, Dalian Rodriguez and others created a Telegram chat group called, quote, Patriots 45 MAGA Gang, (laughs) and used it as a platform to advocate violence against certain groups and individuals that either supported the 2020 presidential election results, supported what the group perceived as liberal or communist ideologies, or held positions of authority in government. So there was many, many people they were looking at. The group's activities included collecting weapons and tactical gear to bring to Washington on January 6th, storming past barricades to gain unlawful access to the Capitol and coordinating activities before, during, and after the riot. Mm -hmm. So the indictment alleges that the defendants conspired to stop, delay, and hinder Congress's certification of the Electoral College vote, as well as to prevent evidence from being used in the investigations of their activities. They are in some trouble. Big trouble. Oh, big trouble in little Fontana. (laughs) And um, on for some more, we have more good news. Mark Meadows, who, I mean, he's just a, you know, a giant piece of poo. And, you know, there's not too much good news that can come out of this. But we know he was Trump's chief of staff at the time of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. He's cooperating with the House committee investigating the pro-Trump insurrection. That's according to the committee chairman, Rep. Benny Thompson. He told us that on Tuesday. Quote, Mr. Meadows has has been engaging with the select committee through his attorney. He has produced records to the committee and will soon appear for an initial deposition. Meadows is the highest profile member of Trump's inner circle who's known to be cooperating or who the committee has publicly acknowledged as cooperating. Committee members have previously said many people with connections to the events of that day have voluntarily engaged with investigators, but they have not specified who those individuals are or how high up they were in the Trump administration. Benny Thompson, in his statement, said the committee expects all witnesses, including Mr. Meadows, to provide all information requested and the select committee is lawfully entitled to receive. The committee will continue to assess his degree of compliance with our subpoena after the deposition. So if he doesn't cooperate or if he's still a pain in the fucking ass, that's when we could see contempt charges perhaps voted upon. Details of the deal with Meadows struck with the committee were not made public. Hey, they weren't made public. (laughs) While Meadows has now produced records for the committee and will sit before it, 
He could still try to claim executive privilege to, the, to protect certain pieces of information, making the cooperation very fragile. So there's some more shit people have been screaming about that was happening, just not publicly, to protect the investigation. More good news for AG Day. And good news in general, Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama, they are getting a new vote on whether to form the company's first unionized warehouse in the United States. This is a big deal. A U.S. Labor Board official is ordering a revote after an agency review found Amazon improperly pressured warehouse staff to vote against joining a union, tainting the original election enough to scrap its results. The decision was issued Monday by Regional Director of the National Labor Relations Board. Now, Amazon, of course, is expected to appeal because, because. Then I'm yeah. trying to be real, real <laughs> careful. Yep, the news puts the warehouse in Bessemer outside Birmingham, back in the spotlight as a harbinger of labor organizing efforts at Amazon, which is now America's second largest private employer with more than 950,000 employees. Jesus. <laughs> My God, the union drive is being led by the retail, wholesale, and department store union. Its president, Stuart Applebaum, hailed Monday's development. This is a quote. Today's decision confirms that we are saying all along that Amazon's intimidation and interference prevented workers from having a fair say in whether they wanted a union in their workplace. Plain and simple. That's it, AG. Awesome. I bet Rick Smith is happy about this. Check out the Rick Smith Show. They're on the MSW Media Network. You can check out all our shows at mswmedia.com. All right. Up next, I have a chat with one of my favorite people, Pete Strzok, about the secrecy of federal investigations. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Happy today to be joined by the author of Compromised and uh, my favorite Russian spy hunter. Please welcome Peter Strzok. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. The reason I wanted to bring you on today is because we've got a couple of new filings. We're getting to a point in our democracy, I guess, where we're all sort of waiting for some accountability in several things, including the soft coup, which was the White House and their their shadow legal advisory team of Jenna Ellis and Eastman and Jeffrey Bosart Clark trying to get Pence to throw out electors. We've got the hard coup, the actual insurrection where we're, you know, we've got, I think last July we had 6,000 subpoenas from the federal grand jury and, and who knows how many we have now, but we still haven't gotten to or heard about any of the leaders of the insurrection being brought before a grand jury. And then a couple of other things going on, you know, New York, Manhattan, Fulton County DA is looking into the soft coup. <laughs> and we've got all sorts of things going on and, the clock is ticking. And since you're such an expert on investigations and secrecy, I figured I would bring you on to talk about this. So first off, can you tell us why it is that prosecutors prefer that documents, evidence, witness statements, testimony are not public, out in the public? Sure. And there, there are a couple of points to make there. One is what prosecutors and investigators might prefer. And the second thing is what the law and regulation requires, certainly in terms of preference as an investigator. Um, and probably, you know, I'm not a prosecutor, so I don't want to speak for them, but my experience working with prosecutors, as you're building a case, you do not frequently want to telegraph where you're going. You're trying to get everybody's recollection and statements independent of others. You don't want to give others the ability to hear what other people have said and adjust their testimony. You don't want anybody certainly kind of getting together and saying, all right, you know, trying to coordinate a story or if something is not disclosed, then somebody else knows they don't need to mention it because the government may not be aware of it. So there are a lot of reasons that you may, for positive reasons, want to um, 
not disclose what you're doing in the case of an investigation. But then there are a whole sense of uh, sort of compulsory reasons that you can't. Some of it is simply the presumption of innocence. The department, which is both prosecutors and the FBI, investigate people with the kind of baseline assumption that you know somebody is innocent until they're proven guilty. So unless and until you're ready to go forward and arrest somebody with a you know, a complaint or an indictment and make the allegations publicly against them and be ready to, to prove that or not in a court of law. You don't want to unnecessarily prejudice somebody by, you know, throwing out a bunch of information that you're investigating them with a potential wrongdoing. And that's, you know, part of the justice manual and, and the theory of, of prosecution in the United States. And then there's certainly rules like, you know, grand jury secrecy. The government prosecutors are prohibited uh, from discussing people who come and testify before a grand jury, documents and materials and things that might have been uh, obtained through a grand jury subpoena, the government can't talk about that by rule. So you're not going to hear, you shouldn't hear prosecutors or agents or anybody else talking about things that are going on in front of a grand jury. Now, that being said, there is no prohibition against somebody who is called before the grand jury to talk about that fact. So if you receive a grand jury subpoena, they go in and testify, you can walk out of the courthouse and sit down in front of the cameras and talk about everything that you're asked. If you are, you know, given a, a grand jury subpoena and there are ways to seal it, but by and large, that secrecy does not bind typically the individual who is the recipient of um, that subpoena. So, you know, there are many reasons um, why people may not hear about it. What's frustrating, obviously, is that if you don't hear about something that you don't know whether that means that you're not hearing about it because it's going on or you're not hearing about it because it doesn't exist. And, and I understand that's the, the primary frustration for a lot of folks. Yeah. And I'm thinking of, of uh, the Bannon case here. First of all, you know, you, you mentioned the order in which investigations sort of go. Do you think a prosecutor might save recalcitrant or combative witnesses to the end? Like someone like Bannon, if you bring him in front of a grand jury let's say the Department of Justice does because they're criminally investigating his role in the insurrection. I feel like I would wait to the end because he's going to tell everybody and raise money off of it and tell everybody what he was asked and, and, and leak all that information. And so I feel like the closer you get to the end of an investigation, the closer you get to an indictment, that's when you start hearing things because it's, you save those sort of combative, you know, talky a-hole witnesses till the end. Well, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of moving pieces and motivations that are going on right now. And certainly with regard to Bannon or any witness, you know, what a witness might tell you if you approach them cold is potentially very different than what a witness might tell you if you have built a case and you're ready to indict that witness. You know, think about what allegedly uh, Matt Gates is facing down in Florida with what's his name, Greenberg, Greenfield, something, the, the tax, mm -hmm. the tax official down in Florida who it appears by media reporting may be cooperating in, in part because the government has leverage in the form of all these charges they might or have brought against them. And so if you go to somebody and you say, hey, look, what can you tell us about X? You might get a very different answer if you go before somebody and say, hey, to their attorney, look, we're ready to charge your client on this charge, this charge, this charge. Why don't we talk about a cooperation agreement? What might you have to say if we drop some of these charges, if we recommend you know, uh, a lower end of the sentence and, you know, you get a, a, a reduction or downward departure for cooperation. So people's motivations change based on the state of play of the investigation. And certainly, you know, again, my experience has been people are, shockingly enough, far more willing to be forthcoming and forthright with the facts and the totality and completeness of the facts if they're facing significant criminal charges than they are if you just go in there without any leverage. So it may well be 
that the government is waiting to get to that point, but I don't, I don't know that. Um, you know, I think with Bannon, this is very much purely a function of enforcing the subpoena, the congressional subpoena, and his, you know, just insolence in, in refusing to to honor that. I don't know that, you know, that that isn't to say there aren't, and that's what makes this complicated, right? There may be other investigations, like certainly before he was pardoned, there were the investigations up in New York involving involving. Uh, a Chinese uh, businessman, and there are potentially other things involving Stone. And then just outside of the criminal environment, you have to remember there are at least two other things going on. One are all the congressional investigations. And the second thing are, you know, the IG investigation. And there are a variety of IG investigations, which various people may have equities in. In my experience, the sort of pecking order of those is that typically criminal investigations are at the top of the food chain, that people will, certainly within the department, the IG will defer to a criminal investigation. They're not going to do anything that's going to upset that investigation. They're going to defer in timing of what they want to do to those criminal investigations. When it comes to Congress, that's more of a, a, a complex dance. Um, nobody wants to, you know, neither, neither branch of government is going to want to defer their prerogatives to another branch because they want to maintain their independence. But at the same time, you know, neither of them want to be in the position where the other is pointing the finger at them saying, you screwed up what I'm trying to do. And so that becomes a complex process. You know, I've many times been involved in investigating things that Congress was also looking at. Um, typically there is, you know, certainly if you have the same party, there's a, a great deal of not cooperation, but sort of awareness of the other's prerogatives. But even when there's, you know, opposing sides, when you get different sides of the political spectrum in the executive branch and the congressional branch, there's still a little bit of deference. And frequently you'll see that manifest its way in terms of the executive saying, well, you know, we have an ongoing investigation. We're not going to talk about it, or we can't produce these records because they're relevant to an ongoing uh, investigation. And so whatever Congress may ask or demand, you know, we want these records, we want these witnesses, there's going to be some pushback by the executive against that. Now, where it gets really complicated is, and you know, we saw this in, in certainly with the Mueller investigation, people outside the government who Congress wants to subpoena, who wants documents from, may be facing a congressional subpoena and in a way that the, the executive branch can't stop. And in some cases where it gets really complex is somebody says, well, I don't want to testify. And Congress says, okay, we're going to grant you immunity for your testimony. Well, is that how far does that immunity transfer over to other aspects of outside of a congressional setting? So again, this, it, it's, that's only scraping the surface of an enormously complex environment. But suffice it to say, A, it is complex. And B, I mean, look at everything we're facing. We're facing all of the criminal January 6th investigations. We're facing all of the IG investigations about things that happened in the last days of the Trump administration and the Barr Department of Justice. We're looking at any number of things that it isn't one discrete event, right? This isn't Fast and Furious. This isn't Benghazi. This is like 15 different things where all these different entities have an angle and it gets it gets really, really complicated. And I'm sure, you know, that's just what I'm kind of surmising from the outside. I'm sure there are things inside which make it even worse than that or more complex than that. Yeah. And the the chair of the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, said publicly that they are working very closely with the Department of Justice on the you know investigation into what happened on January 6th, which could mean multiple things. We know that there's going to be some rioters like boots on the ground insurrectionists that are going to be testifying to the to the one six committee. We know they've subpoenaed a lot of the funders and organizers, including like Amy and Kylie Kramer and and that group. 
And then, of course, the Alex Joneses and Roger Stones of the world, the middlemen there. But it could mean that, hey, you know, we want to make sure that we aren't stepping on any current or potential future criminal investigations into maybe the leaders or the funders of the riot. But it also could just mean we need to coordinate when we're going to get the rioters in here to testify. It's it's really hard to tell, like what what they're communicating about, though, I, though I imagine it's it's pretty much the entire breadth of of the, the actual insurrection, as opposed to something like the soft coup, which is the, you know, the Bosart letters and the Eastman memo and the Raffensperger call, all that stuff that happened within the Department of Justice that. We know that the inspector general of the Department of Justice has been investigating since as early as January 25th and that Merrick Garland had testified he would take whatever recommendations are given to him and follow them by that inspector general, who is Horowitz, who I think has been there since like 08 or something like that. And he's he's come out with several decisions that were big news stories during the during the Mueller investigation. But, you know, there are so many moving parts to this. But to talk about some of the stuff on the on the one six committee, I want to get into that in just a minute. But you brought up in the first answer there, some of the, some of the harms that could be inflicted on, on a a ongoing or future investigation by witness statements getting out, for example. And what's happening with Bannon right now is, is in just his indictment for, for contempt of Congress, not anything else he's done (laughs) just in, in that uh, particular case, he, he wanted all of his documents to be discovery documents to be, you know, he wanted to be able to release them, but filed not under seal so that they could be seen by the public. And the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., the new U.S. attorney who just got there November 5th, Matthew Graves, filed an opposition to his request to have these documents to, you know, not filed under seal. Or I should say Bannon's opposition to the DOJ's wanting to file them under seal. And he says one of the harms is allowing the defendant to publicly disseminate reports of witness statements will have the collateral effect of witness tampering because it will expose witnesses to public commentary on their potential testimony before trial. And it allows a witness to review summaries of other witnesses statements recounting the same event or events. Does that mean it kind of gives witnesses a chance to sort of get their story straight or prepare a defense or maybe even destroy evidence? Is that kind of what he's getting at there with the witness tampering? I, I think there are a lot of different ways that can manifest itself. And some of it certainly is, you know, if you see that somebody's relaying a story a certain way, you understand that, you know, they're, they're describing things or not describing things. So that gives you a window into what the government may or may not know. It could be something as simple as, you know, I didn't remember something. And then I hear something and I say, oh, yeah, I remember it now, even though that's a false recollection. It could be something that, you know, I want to come in and you're going to testify about me. And that may be one thing. But if we release stuff through discovery where I'm emailing and shit talking about you with somebody else, you suddenly see that and you're like, well, screw Pete. And I'm going to testify in a different way because it's clear, you know, he's an asshole instead of, you know, the friend that I thought he was. So I, they're just it's 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 kind of impossible to kind of iterate through all the different ways that having the information out there in the public domain can influence uh, a potential jury or a potential witness. But, you know, you've got to believe that. Bannon's attorneys are smart and they're going to be, if they are able, they're going to be releasing or talking to the media or whoever's listening. They're going to be doing that in a way to favor their case and their sort of presentation of their theory of the case. And so it is not a, you know, the goal of a trial is to get information in there in a, in a way that meets evidentiary standards that is fair in our system of justice. And if you have people kind of talking in a, in a very provocative way, presenting one side of the story in the court of public opinion before it's ever gone into a courtroom that can be very prejudicial uh, to either side. 
And it is it is illustrative. I think if you look, you know, it's been clear Bannon's intent from the get go when he had his little live stream of turning himself into to WFO at the at the FBI that he intends to make a media spectacle of it. He's he's milking it for all he can for donations for public support, and that given the opportunity, he's going to continue to do that all the way through trial and, and conviction or acquittal. Now you think about you know Roger Stone, also a very similar sort of personality, went to trial in D.C. and faced, you know, some pretty significant um, and standard, I, my, my experience, restrictions on what he could talk about through the discovery process. So it's not like this is new, you know, ban- either Bannon, the sort of personality or the sort of politically charged case with this sort of media visibility. This is something that's come up in D.C. time and again. So there is precedent here. It is precedent consistent with what the government's asking for. And you know, if you think about even Stone, how deferential the court was when he was, you know, somebody and he claimed, oh, I don't run my, I don't know if it was Twitter or what social media feed it was that had the judge in that case and crosshairs on some some image that was posted online. And the court was still pretty tolerant, in my opinion, mm-hmm. of that sort of behavior. But the point being, th- there are processes in place that I would expect that a the government is going to plead and ask for in a similar way, and the court is going to look at and, and look at what has been done in the past. And I would expect rule in a similar sort of manner. Um, so I would expect to see some sort of uh, limitation on on discussion of discovery and other matters about the trial outside of the courtroom uh, placed on both parties or both sides. Yeah, and I do imagine that the judge, at least in the Bannon case, is going to grant the the government the the protective order for them to be able to file these things under seal. I mean, especially just by law, like you said, grand jury stuff has to be secret. I do have one more quick question, just another minute or so about January 6th and, of course, obstruction of justice, volume two of the Mueller report. But I have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Sure. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. We're talking with the author of Compromised Book You Must Own. Buy it now. Pete Strzok. Pete, before the break, I had alluded to a question I wanted to ask you about January 6th and then the obstruction of justice charges with the January 6th stuff. A lot of this testimony is behind closed doors. We haven't seen really much since we saw the four officers testify, which is very poignant and important testimony, but I think probably wouldn't have any kind of an impact on a criminal investigation if there was one going on at the Department of Justice, which we haven't heard hide nor hair about. Why do uh, why do you think that they're doing these interviews behind closed doors? You know, because they say they're going to do public stuff maybe in the spring. Is that to sort of get a sense of what the witness is like, what they're going to say and what they have to offer before they make it public, sort of like what happened in the impeachment? Uh, I think so. I think there is a sense, you know, they are building up like any investigator would. You start at the the ground level and you build up and you don't want to go to somebody higher up in the chain, whether they were somebody coordinating it or funding it or directing it. You don't want to get to them without getting a pretty good sense of the facts of what occurred on the ground because your your questioning won't be much better if you have the ability to ask questions about facts and documents and evidence that you can put in front of somebody so they can't, you know, hedge around something or say they don't remember. So if they're faced with a witness saying, you know, I spoke to so and so on this date on, you know, at the Willard Hotel the night before and they said this, it's much harder for somebody if you didn't have that, somebody could just say, oh, I don't remember what I talked about, but if they're faced with information that, that aids you in the course of if you're trying to um, talk to somebody or, or depose them or you know ask them questions, that's going to be better for what you're trying to do with more information. Look, I don't think, I know people are frustrated. I know that folks want more visibility and transparency publicly into what's going on. I, I truly believe, I, you know, I don't think there are any dummies on the Democratic side which is, you know, but for Kinzinger and Cheney, I guess it's all Democrat. But um, 
I, I anticipate that they are savvy politicians and they have a plan to what they want to get to. And I'm certain they're aware that you know, the possibility that the House and Senate will flip in the midterm elections. I am certain that they have considered the rollout of the public aspects of this investigation and coordinating and timing that against the political cycle and what makes sense. I don't know that that is the overwhelming motivation, but I am certain they have thought about that in terms of how they roll it out. I don't want to say it's a weakness, but it is a feature, it seems, of the Democratic Party that they seem to want to play by the rules more than partisan Republicans will. And what that means is you have more of a sense of uh, hewing to precedent and a kind of sense of, of fairness in a way that, you know, I think people, some people say, well, why, why can't we have the, the Democratic, the Democrats version of Benghazi, right? Where we have a public hearing every week and every Wednesday and Thursday, all the major networks will tune well, in because you'll hear. be interviewing Republicans, Adam Schiff, <laughs> interviewing people, you know, again and again and again. And if you were concerned about the drip, drip, drip coming out of Trey Gowdy, well, why can't we have a drip, drip, drip coming out of Adam Schiff? And that's a but you're not going to have a cooperative Hillary Clinton on the other end of that. No, but she wasn't. I mean, you can sit there and you can wheel out. I mean, there are people who will appear and you can wheel them out and, and mm -hmm. do, you know, whether they're I, there. There are undoubtedly a ton of folks there. Um, the question would be, and again, where it gets complicated is, you know, Benghazi, there was no crime there. I mean, it was it was all a bullshit political spectacle. Whereas this there's real crime. So, you know, you call somebody and they take the fifth because there's real crime that occurred on January 6th. Well, then what do you have is the committee. You've got like a you know, oh, well, we're going to have hearings, but this person, you know, you know we're going to make them come in and they're going to sit there and they're going to take the fifth in front of all the cameras. Well, okay, there's a marginal benefit to that, to the political narrative of the nation. But at the end of the day, you know, at some point we just have this parade of people coming in who sit down and they refuse to testify because they might be implicated in the crime. That that doesn't necessarily get you that far. So again, the 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 advantage of congressional investigations is they can move very, very quickly. The disadvantage when you're looking at something where there's actual crime that occurred, it does limit in some ways what an opposing party Congress can do because the people presumably they want to talk to, to your point, you know, they're not cooperative. They're, they're one, they're on the other party. Two, they might legitimately or not be facing criminal exposure and certainly facing it potentially to the extent that claiming or taking the fifth is not going to you know, seem unreasonable or inappropriate. And so for all the people clamoring for, well, we want more public things, you know, I don't, there are only so many Capitol Police officers you can get up there to tell a compelling story. There are only so many cooperative potential witnesses who can come in and tell you about what occurred before you run out of folks. And because at the end of the day, who everybody wants to hear from are all the folks on the other side, right? The people who coordinated this, the people who paid for it, the people who directed it, what their goals were, what they understood, what, what conspiracy, if any, existed. And all of that happens to be, in my opinion, pretty clear violations of the law. So mm -hmm. you're not, as a congressional investigator, you can ask all you want, but most of those people, you're not going to get a whole lot of cooperation. And in the whole process of negotiating and going back and forth, you are going to potentially get in the way and complicate the criminal investigation that DOJ is trying to do right now. So it, it's not it's not a great. While it would seem, yes, the Democrats have both houses of Congress and the White House. What that translates to in terms of the public's ability to kind of hear in real time what occurred, it, it isn't as strong a hand as people might think. No, my preference is a criminal investigation with big, fat, juicy speaking indictments. <laughs> that's that's how I want it. And then maybe you bring the uh you know the the US attorney or the attorney general in to answer questions about the speaking indictment and the evidence they found 
and then, you know, I just I just have about 30, 30 seconds to a minute here, but I'm really interested in, in why you think there hasn't been a pickup or investigation or any peep at all about the obstruction of justice charges in volume two of the Mueller report. And we know D.C. U.S. attorney just got there November 5th, but I can't imagine they were waiting for him to get there. They might have been waiting for him to get there to do the Bannon thing because it was right around the same time. But this just seems like an open and shut case to me. They have the McGahn testimony. I don't know if a criminal referral was made to the Department of Justice from that committee or not. And I don't I don't understand why they don't just get on that. I don't know. I don't know what, you know, particularly because given the, you know, after the second impeachment of Trump, when people like Mitch McConnell were, you know, and other notable Republican leaders were placing a lot of not only responsibility at Trump's feet, but also saying, you know, our job isn't to impeach that there are other mechanisms, you know, including the, the, the criminal process to look at these things. You know, in my opinion, that was the time to, th- that was the point of greatest leverage. I don't know whether or not something is ongoing. If there was something, I would expect to hear at least occasional people, you know, the attorneys or people who went into a grand jury to provide testimony. I would expect to hear little hints of that. And hearing nothing can, I mean, it does concern me. I think there's criminal behavior there. And I think it's, we're, we're neglectful not to investigate that and prosecute it, notwithstanding, you know, historic OLC opinion and things your listeners are probably well versed with. But my suspicion is there's so much on the plate of DOJ right now, so much that is partisan in flavor, that adding another thing like an obstruction investigation of Trump is, is a huge political lift. And this perspective of, A, we want to look forward, not backward. And B, to the extent we want to look backward, the most grievous thing I mean, however bad Trump trying to obstruct Mueller and Comey and the Bureau's investigations, you know, it's horrible, but it's not as horrible as an insurrection, Mm -hmm. the likes of which we haven't seen since, you know, the 1800s. So I, I, I don't know that there's anything going on. I don't have a lot of hope that there is something going on. And I certainly don't think that there is anything out there in the future that's suddenly going to cause a an aha moment that's going to surge DOJ resources into, you know, picking up and dusting off volume two of the Mueller report and, and starting to go down that path of looking at it. Now, the only thing that gives me hope is we didn't hear a peep about Tom Barrick, but 98 percent of Americans don't even know who that is. <laughs> so, right. And the, whereas we do, we're like, oh, my God, Tom Barrick was indicted. Yeah, it's not it's not Donald Trump. All right. Well, hey, thank you very much. I know I kept you over time. I appreciate your time today. Everybody check out the book Compromised. Follow Pete Strzok on Twitter. Great follow. Very, uh, very low key. Hilarious. I love your dry sense of humor. And I appreciate you. Cool. Thanks for being here today. Thanks. Everybody stick around. We'll be back with the good news. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the good news. Oh, you waiting for me. <laughs> you were looking up. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know if there was an Sometimes there's an insert of like audios that I can't hear. And so when AG looks up like that at the ceiling, I'm like, they must be inserting something. I should stay quiet. <laughs> yeah, I hope that didn't make anyone think that there wasn't any additional good news today. Oh, my God. That was really funny. Yes, I'm very excited about the good news on top of the good news on top of the good news as well. Would you like to kick us off, my friend? <laughs> I could. A little bit of housekeeping first. There's a link to a survey in the show notes today. Please fill it out. It will help us know who our listeners are, and we appreciate you. 
Oh, and by the way, if you have anything you want to send into us for good news, do it now. Do it today. Don't wait. You know, I mean, there's, you know, all this, you know, supply chain backlogs. So, you know, we need to do it early and do it fast so that we can get it in time for the I'm just kidding. Just send your stuff in by going to <laughs> dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. First up from Cuddly Turtle, pronoun she and her. Name for an asthmatic cat. Eloise. Wheezy for short, of course. Very good. <laughs> Prior to Thanksgiving, I sent a submission and you asked the breed of my dog. Yes, I remember. You were correct. Willow is a Vizsla. I'm attaching another picture, one of my favorites, of Willow with her brother, McAllister, who has gone over the Rainbow Bridge. Oh, Oh, what a sweet photo. No. <laughs> Vizslas are so smart and happy and adorable. I love this. Thank you so much for sending this in and answering my question, Cuddly Turtle. I appreciate you. And a really great name, by the way, for an asthmatic cat. Well done. Wheezy. Yeah. All right. This is from Nick Pronounce He Him. Now, despite some recent unfortunate automotive events, namely my wife's catalytic converter being stolen a week before Thanksgiving, the shop discovering yesterday that her battery also needs to be replaced, and just this morning, me getting a big ass chip in my windshield, I've been trying to find a good in this holiday season. And I don't just mean being thankful that we had full coverage that covered the converter theft, which otherwise would have been almost $3,000 repair on a 2008 Prius. Damn. Now, specifically, I come to an aspired realization about walking disaster Steve Bannon. <laughs> While we Leguminati try to punch up and not bag on people's appearances, I thought of the perfect way to describe Steve Bannon. I realized that, A, my previous description of if the platonic form of a hobo developed, developed the platonic form of alcoholism, would demean both the voluntarily transient and the alcohol addicted. Again, punch up, not down. Now, by the way of associating them with this fascist waste of cells. And B, a better description regardless that would be that Stephen Bannon looks the way old school NyQuil tastes. You know, what Dennis Leary <laughs> described as the green death flavor. I figured this epiphany counts as good news because of this community's feelings about Steve Bannon. <laughs> nice Dennis Leary pull. Nyquil, Nyquil, Nyquil. We love you, you giant fucking Q. <laughs> well done. Also related to the good news today's show about the alternatively bowled cat. I'll suggest Ryder for a name given that moving somewhat defines her existence. Ryder, U-Haul. Yeah. I like it. Attached as a pet tax or in the good news tax for the pets. Hmm are our dogs. Full Corgi, G-I-R. Is that, do you know what that stands for? No. Maybe that's the Corgi's name, Jer? I don't know. Okay. Is wearing a Christmas decoration as, I think it is the name, as headgear and loving it. As you remember, Jer loves wearing things in general. Half Corgi, half mini Australian shepherd. (laughs) Cookie is cuddling our son's plushie of Piplup. A penguin-styled penguin Pokemon. Pokemon, yeah, okay. Oh. Oh, my God. I love this corgi smiling. My God. <laughs> Josh Campbell has corgis, too. I love corgis so much. Yeah, is it is the name? You have to tell us now, Nick. Is it Gear, Gur, Jer? What is your full corgi's name? Does is it, it stand GIF, for something? GIF? One of us has to know. Come on. <laughs> Next up from I cannot confirm or deny that he, she has name or pronouns. All right. AGDG Amy and Professor and Marianne. (laughs) Nice. Since your letter writer on Tuesday asked for a suggested name for a new cat, here are two I've been considering for what for when I get a cat. My partner has a dog from before we moved in, and this would the dog would harass the cat into permanent neurosis. APT 35, an Iranian backed hacking group known colloquially as Charming Kitten. 
who have been engaged in mad fuckery of the fishing variety as a method of infiltration for at least three years. And Polyakov, a Soviet general who gave his life to provide contextual information to the Americans that helped cool tensions between the superpowers and likely averted exchange of missiles. His cryptonym was Top Hat after the 1960s cartoon show Top Cat. Considering Polyakov, I think is how you pronounce it, was an avid fisherman, it seems fitting here. Polyakov came here to get a fishy snack. Although considering a hairball sounds uh, like someone whispering the word hack hack, it could also be fitting. What's that sound? Oh, just the APT35 hacking in the computer room. (laughs) (laughs) Keep up the good work and giving us reasons to smile. Those are some real deep state names. Seriously. Uh, Well done. Well done. All right. This is from anonymous pronouns. She and her. Hello, all and the rest. Time for another installment of Cats and Hats, the holiday edition. Some of my pics of shelter kitties from two years ago as part of our 12 Days of Cat Miss campaign. No cats or humans, namely me, were harmed in the creation of these photos. However, some kitties may have been slightly annoyed. (laughs) A name suggesting for yesterday's newly adopted kitty with asthma and digestive issues, Calamity Jane. (laughs) Happy holidays to all. Oh my God. The first picture... (laughs) Jane is a great name for a cat, by the way. Oh, my God. Oh, are, dude. oh the third picture. <laughs> these are fantastic. <laughs> the middle. These are all great. The one in the middle is literally rolling his eyes. Look at that. Mm, so adorable. Thank you. And I love the little st- meow stocking they're all posing next to. All right. Finally, up last here from Maria. Uh, Maria. Oh, Maria. Oh, I had it right. Okay. Pronouns she and her. Hello, AG and DG. I've got me a doozy of a Thanksgiving tradition story for you and a confession. So my Aunt Joni found a recipe back in the late 1950s for cheese squares, and they've become the coveted appetizer for any family holiday gathering. They are laborious, to put it mildly. I've taken the baton of making them the past few years, and especially after COVID, I wanted to make a solidly delicious, plentiful batch for a Thanksgiving reunion this past Saturday. I was so excited to get started resurrecting a tradition, pleasing my beloved cousins, brothers, nieces, and nephews. So much cheese and butter, anyone's heart would explode. (laughs) I got all set up in my family room. Why do this in the kitchen where I have no TV? That's just silly talk. So I put all the ingredients, tools in the dish and dishware onto my coffee table, turn on my favorite movie and start in. I was home alone and about an hour in on these little devils. My husband walked through the door. He surveyed my impressive setup with a smile. And I meant to say, honey, I've got an assembly line all set up. But instead I say, honey, I've got my gangbang all set up. Whoopsie. (laughs) I have no idea where in the ever living unholy hilarity my brain went with that pronouncement. But it has now become part of the lexicon of my family. Pulling laundry together. Gangbang. Assembling a taco. Gangbang. Amassing paperwork. You get the idea. If nothing else, my utter brain fail provided my immediate and extended family with a raunchy AF, if not rather tightly held inside joke. I mean, it's not really one you can bust out among polite company. (laughs) (laughs) I've included a pick of the pile of butter and cheese the recipe calls for and the final mixture with all the seasonings that is spread into five loaves of cut up bread. I love you guys so much. You've brought me, my hubby and our daughter, Hope, joy, laughter and strength since the kitchen days. I'm grateful for everything you do. And I thank you for sharing joy among our strong, badass community. You are all truly rock stars. So much love. Oh, my God. Oh, my butter. (laughs) Wait, is that butter and cheese or is that? Yeah. 
Yeah, this is like a Paula Deen joint right it here. It sure is. Holy minus Mata. minus the racism. <laughs> yeah, minus the racism. Exactly. <laughs> is there heavy whipping cream in there too? Like, oh my, my god, that's god. amazing. I bet they're pretty amazing though. <laughs> uh, do you deep fry these when they're done? Like, I got to see. I got to see a finished photo, please, Maria. I have to. Anyway, thank you all so much for sending these in. I would love to hear about your holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving. Any holiday you celebrate traditions this season, send them in to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Dana. Yes. Do you have any final thoughts? I do. I want to remind everyone to celebrate. Uh, celebrate is an interesting word, but honor. Remember that today is National uh, World AIDS Day, mm-hmm. not national. It's World AIDS Day. So if you do have a, um, a little place in your heart where you would like to help support an organization that's still continuing to fight this virus, now's the time to do it. There are a lot of organizations out there um, that could use just your help. I think, I feel like we are on the precipice of actually, you know, finding, I don't want to cure, I don't want to say it, but like, even I think the Moderna one of the companies is like so close to like their trials with the AIDS vaccine. So, you know, if you got a couple dollars to spare, do it and otherwise just support the organizations best you can. Yeah, hundred percent. Or if you want to support an organization that fights the stigma of HIV, hundred percent. Or, um, you know, anything, anything you hold a place in your heart for. And you know what? Thoughts do it, too. Absolutely. Sending thoughts and love out as you know, if you're if that's your if that's your jam. Anyway, thank you for your final thought. I yes, appreciate that. Absolutely. And stay tuned tomorrow to see if we have final thoughts from Dana. And until then, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G. And I've been D.G. And them's the beans. Refried beans. I like refried beans. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. 
Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.